BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Come experience what the Constitution means to me at Paramount's Copley Theater in downtown Aurora from October 4th to November 12th. What that's you say, Chris, what's the Constitution means to me? What is it? Well, the Constitution means to me is hilarious, heartbreaking, and insightful. Tickets are available starting at $40 online now at ParamountAurora.com. What's that you say, Chris? Where are those tickets available? They are available at ParamountAurora.com. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, September 14th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back NYU grad and in these times web editor Miles Kompflossen. The Ben Jarofsky show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, anything you want to know about Chicago, in Chicago, or anyone from Chicago, head to ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, you can find him there. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Silly Season Thursday, and here's why. It's budget time in the city of Chicago, and that is the silliest season of them all. Well, actually, the silliest season of them all may be the football season, the Chicago Bears football season. I was telling my distinguished guest, Miles, before we went on. I have a friend, I will not name him, who is a right winger. He's gone right wing. He used to be left. Now he's moved right. Hates Biden. Hates Stacey Davis-Gates. Hates the Chicago Teachers Union. Anytime he could get anything embarrassing about Stacey Davis-Gates, Hunter Biden, the Democratic Party sends it to me. But he loves the Bears. He's got this weird thing about the Bears. And so he never talks about how bad the Bears are. So I always send him Bears stuff. Funny games that people play. Anyway, back to the point. Silly season. Budget season. There was an article in today's Sun-Times. Brandon Johnson, Mayor Brandon Johnson. You got to give him credit, ladies and gentlemen. He's only been in office for what? What's it been now? Uh, Four months, and he's already learned to play the game of the budget. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, reporters, let me give you some advice, reporters. You know it's a game. You know you're being played. Like, yeah, but you guys got to kind of go along with it, I guess, I guess, huh? McDumpkey and I were talking about this yesterday on the show. We did a recording that'll drop this weekend. If you're a beat reporter in the city of Chicago, you kind of restraints that like Miles Conflason and I do not have and McDumpkey d- does not have. Like you kind of have to play the game. You know what I mean? Because you're relying on the characters who are in the game in a way that we're not relying on them. So part of the game is to pretend as though this is legit. This is a legit discussion about the budget. These are projections, ladies and gentlemen. I've been telling you guys this for 20 years. They project things. Projections are made by the people who do the projecting. You can project whatever you want. And generally, you project stuff that will make your life easier. So, for instance, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, when she was leaving office, projected a rosy future for Chicago. Why? Good question. Because she wanted to make herself look as good as she possibly could. 
<laughs> as she was leaving office. I don't know why she cared. I don't know. Maybe it helped get her that gig at Harvard. She's teaching at Harvard now. So maybe Harvard said, well, God, you did such a good job projecting a rosy future for the city of Chicago based on your leadership. We're going to give you a job. Hey, could have worked. If it did, congratulations, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. You're playing the game, too. So she projected a great future for the city of Chicago. And that it was her way of saying to Brandon, all right, buddy, you, I'm not going to let you blame it on me. That's another thing that happens. When an incoming mayor takes office, what they do is they project a dismal budget season. Why, you ask? Because they don't want to be blamed for the tax hikes that will be coming. Duh! <laughs> not that hard, Chicagoans. Stop acting like it's hard. You got to learn to read between the lines of these articles that are in the newspaper, okay? So, Brandon Johnson projects gloom and doom as the Sun-Times headline says, for seeing red. Uh, Johnson's three-year budget forecast a far cry from rosy pictures painted by predecessor who had projected an $85 million, 224 budget short. But then he throws so many numbers at you, nobody can pay attention to them. That's the other secret. They just throw numbers at them. People don't pay attention to the numbers. So Lori Lightfoot projected a... Uh, a rosy scene because she did not want Brandon Johnson to blame her uh, for the budget deficit, just the way she blamed Mayor Rahm and Mayor Rahm blamed uh, Mayor Daley and Mayor Daley blamed Eugene Sawyer and so on and so forth. So Brandon, she's like, oh, no, Brandon Johnson, you're not going to be due to me what I did to Mayor Rahm and you're not going to do to uh, me what Mayor Rahm did to Mayor Daley. So Brandon says, no, no, it's actually much worse. We're going to have to probably raise taxes. It's not my fault. It's kind of Lori Lightfoot's fault. What a joke. And then there's um, there's also this, this game that they play with the TIFFs. And so uh, what uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa's quote in the paper is saying is that we hope we can reduce the dependency we have on uh, property taxes by taking more of the TIF money out with just sitting in banks unspent unallocated just sitting there we could take that out and apply it uh, to our budget and i have to laugh at that because the reality is those are property taxes the tiff is a property tax every time every year it makes you those tiffs all those tiff districts make you pay more in property tax ladies and gentlemen but the official position of the city of chicago for as long as I can remember when it comes to TIFs, is that there's no connection between TIFs and property tax payments, which is an utterly absurd position to have, utterly devoid of reality, but it works. As far as I know, there's only one person in the city of Chicago who consistently says that TIFs are property, property tax increases. That's me, some lunatic on the left who's speaking in a mic over in his attic overlooking an alley. So no one's paying attention to me. So as long as it's just me saying, ladies and gentlemen, you realize these tips are property tax hikes. They can, nobody is paying attention. They get away with it. <laughs> That's simple. So every year, here's another, here's another thing, another game they play in the silly season. Well, we were able to uh, pay, help pay off of the uh, budget by taking money out of the TIF funds, but we can only say this is a one-time deal. We won't be able to do this next year. So this is just a one-time deal. They always tell you that. And then the Tribune weighs in. It's just a one-time deal. And here comes the Sun-Times. It's just a one-time deal. Here comes Cranes, the trifecta. It's a one-time deal. No, it's not. 
Every year the TIF tax goes up. What? It's not a one-time deal. It's a ceaseless source of money. My recommendation, if you're going to do away with any sense of transparency and honesty with budgets, if you're going to do away with any sense of equity and fairness and how you distribute economic development dollars, if you're just going to use this as the slush fund that it is, then just pretend that it's not a property tax increase and just bank on spending it every year. Think of it as a way to tax people without getting them mad at you because they don't realize or they don't recognize or they're pretending they don't see that it is a tax hike. Here's my prediction, ladies and gentlemen. If Brandon Johnson used TIF dollars to actually help poor people, which is what essentially they're supposed to do, suddenly you will see a switch in reporting of TIFs. Suddenly, you mark my words on this one, ladies and gentlemen, suddenly Cranes and the Tribune will be leading the charge. This is a tax hike. <laughs> 30 years they didn't say it was a tax hike. The day some mayor spends this money helping poor people, then they'll tell you it's a tax hike. And then they'll quote these downtown aldermen like uh, Brian Hopkins. I am outraged by this. I'm concerned about the taxpayers. Oh, you weren't concerned about them when you were jacking up their taxes to pay for Lincoln Yards. You weren't concerned about them then, were you? Games people play in the silly season. I can go on and on and on, but my distinguished guest, Miles Conflassen from In These Times, is uh, awaiting, and he is eager to talk about the news of the day. Welcome back, Cotter. Thank you for having me, Ben. Glad to be here. All right. Um, so much to discuss. I will not ask you to weigh in on uh, the budget games in the silly season. I uh, do not want to have a conversation about budget at this particular moment. Uh, instead, you, I want to talk about what you did to me this morning. Damn you, Miles Conflassen. Uh, I said, Miles, what do you want to talk about? And you said the UAW negotiations uh, with the big three in Detroit and the possibility that there's an auto strike and what that means about labor. So, ladies and gentlemen, I spent about an hour going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm like immersed in this stuff right now. And I think that was a good call, Miles. Uh, the pending strike or the possible strike that may take place uh, with um, the UAW, the negotiations, what's at stake with these negotiations uh, says a lot, in my humble opinion, about where we are as a country right now in labor relations and sort of the um, the scary future for workers as the industry changes, all industries. There's some, there's some parallels between the AI conversations in the negotiations between the screenwriters uh, and the actors with the Hollywood producers and the concerns about electric cars between UAW uh, and the big three here in the United States. So uh, that's why this is so important. And it's also political ramifications for uh, President Joe Biden. So, Miles, take it away. Why don't you talk, explain the issues at stake uh, in this uh, labor showdown? Go ahead. Well, tonight, uh, September 14th at midnight is the deadline for uh, that has been set to uh, finish negotiations on contracts between the United Auto Workers and the big three companies, the automakers, as you mentioned, GM, Ford and Stellantis, which is formerly like Fiat Chrysler um, renamed. But um, still, those are the big three companies. They control the vast majority of the uh, U.S. auto market. And they all have um, 
you know, relationships with, uh, with the union, with the UAW. The UAW uh, earlier this year, well, it's about like five months ago, um, re elected new leadership and in the first kind of democratic way when this version of it with members actually having a vote, a lot of people might associate UAW with having corrupt leadership and they certainly have in the past. And a lot of those leaders ended up facing uh, punishment for, you know, skimming money off the top. And I would say practicing some version of company unionism where they were not practicing, you know, the role of being a militant worker centered rank and file forward uh, union and instead were uh, kind of making back deals with uh, management. This uh, leadership under Sean Fain, who was a real reformer, has taken a very different tack where they have um, set out a very ambitious set of demands. Um, those, just to go over them briefly, include uh, around 40% raises for workers uh, and end to tiers and previous, especially during the um, crisis in under Obama and back in like 2010, 2009, a lot of the unions agreed to these concessionary contracts that allowed for there to be tiered workers. So different workers were getting different standards and different pay scales. They want to put an end to that and say, you know, workers across the board deserve um, the same benefits, the same type of pay. Um, they also want to provide benefits to retirees who had had to face, many of whom are, you know, living in uh, very dire financial straits. They want to, you know, provide some support for them to get better pensions, to have profit sharing so that there's actually money when they're doing all these stock buybacks. So much of the money you see that happen that goes in with these auto companies is from stock buybacks, from shareholders, from wealthy investors um, taking money out through the you know stock market system and benefiting from it. And the workers don't see any of that benefit. So they want to see some version of profit sharing. And um, um, you know, one important element is work-life balance. This is a really ambitious demand, but one we've seen other organizations take on is a 32-hour work week um, at 40-week pay. So that would um, have, you know, four-day work week instead of a five-day work week. That's kind of reclaiming some of the promise of a lot of earlier labor fights, fighting for more time for oneself and freedom from uh, working on the job. Um, you know, right now there's workers working 60, 70 hours backbreaking labor. Um, so this would be a massive change if they could get it down to 32 hours or something like that. And then, of course, on electric vehicles, this is what fits in with what you were mentioning before, kind of like taking in the realities of a new and changing industry and trying to adapt to them because so many electric vehicle companies are starting to open up, but a lot of them don't aren't covered under these union contracts. And a lot of them are getting federal funding under either the Inflation Reduction Act or other um, Biden administration-led and federal government-funded programs that have meant to you know, build up our capacity to adapt to a changing future where electric vehicles will be much more popular and with the interest of moving towards green technology. Unfortunately, as I said, you know, those companies largely are not unionized or don't have the same type of contracts. And so those workers are facing much worse conditions and they're jumping from factory to factory. It's much harder to have a consistent workforce. And so in order to have what they're called, you know, we call a just transition that would involve actually, you know, training current auto workers on building electric battery, electric, electric style cars so that, you know, we retain the and, and train up 
um, the current workforce while allowing newer workers to get in some of the benefits that have been won over decades of struggle. I mean, the reason that there even was like a middle class life available to auto workers in previous decades was through years of struggle. You know, people remember the Flint sit down strike of the of the 30s. Now what uh, Sean Fain and the leadership are calling for in this moment is what they're calling a stand up strike. So at midnight, if a deal is not reached at the auto companies, they plan to strike at all of the auto companies, but they're not planning to do them all at once. They're planning to do a series of kind of rolling strikes at different factories that are going to be most, um, uh, you know, disruptive to the current system to kind of keep the companies guessing and to create chaos and confusion that would force the hand of management so that they actually have to negotiate and bring a fair contract. So far, they've been unwilling to move on any of these issues. And uh, meanwhile, these companies have seen massive, massive profits, record profits in recent years, a quarter trillion dollars in profits over the past uh, 10 years. And that has not trickled down to the workers. And average compensation for the executives has grown by 40%. And so they're just asking for that to be reflected in uh, paying for uh, pay raises for workers as well. And, you know, when, when it comes to that, when it comes to work-life balance, when it comes to um, pensions, retiree payments, um, any of that, the so far, there's been hardly any movement and willingness to negotiate on the part of the companies. And they've been negotiating for, for months now. So it's not like this is coming out of nowhere. You know, these demands have been on the table for a while. And you have a whole media ecosystem, meanwhile, that is, you know, on this morning, Jim Cramer on CS, C, uh, CNBC was saying, just move all the factories to Mexico and have Mexican workers get paid $5 an hour as a way to kind of punish the auto workers for making demands so that they can, you know, live a dignified life. And it's like, this is looking out for the American worker. You know, this is what the right wing kind of conservative media ecosystem is offering, just, you know, uh, export all of our jobs. Um, and But that's the kind of response we're seeing in a lot of the corporate media. And the last thing I'll say on this is it's just reflective of this a real upsurge we're seeing in the labor movement across the country. You know, I've talked on this show a few times about how uh, different this moment is. And it goes, and we're seeing, you know, UPS was strike ready. They were able to bet, get a great contract in comparison to what previous contracts were that the Teamsters did that extracted about like $30 billion out of the company in terms of the gains for workers, which is historic in many ways. Um, we have seen walkouts at uh, companies across the country. The flight attendants are taking strike votes. Um, the strike vote for this strike was 99.7% of auto workers, so almost completely unanimous. They're ready to, to strike. Um, we've seen you know new organizing campaigns happening at places like Starbucks and Trader Joe's and big companies, of course, at Amazon. We've seen kind of wildcat walkouts. I just um, was editing a piece about this um, public worker walkout in Durham, North Carolina, where striking is illegal um, and collective bargaining is like largely illegal. And yet workers are taking power into their own hands. And I think that's because um, it's not just about wages. I think it has to do with like a tight labor market. Obviously, it has to do with the history of the pandemic and workers kind of waking up to being exploited by their employers while they're being called essential and yet treated as expendable. Um, but it also has to do with, you know, wanting to, a dignified life and to have control, you know, and some sense of democracy in the workplace where people spend the majority of their waking hours often um, to not have to live under this kind of tyrannical authoritarian system and instead have a say 
in how their work life is is managed. And that's what the promise of organized labor is, and certainly what's striking is a tool towards achieving, and it can create that sense of worker solidarity and collective power. So I think it's less about strictly, you know, just wages and benefits and more about this broader conception of workers, American workers, having some control over their lives on the job. And that is something that, you know, we've seen the the president make appeals to as being a pro-union president and stuff, but he has not kind of like, well, this is the opportunity, I would say, to like really fully embrace that and talk about why organized labor is the engine of uh, this economy and why we should embrace it by uh, allowing workers to have the benefits that they've earned. All right. That is a great uh, opening riff. And uh, I'll get into uh, the political aspect of this and how President Biden, in your humble opinion, should play this uh, in contrast to, let's say, how he uh, handled or in just in general, how he's uh, handled past labor disputes uh, that have had the potential to be disrupting to the economy. Um, But you said something interesting, and it's a typical me going back to the weeds. Uh, I would love for you to riff on this. Uh, the concept of stock buybacks and how that is so profitable uh, for uh, corporations and not necessarily beneficial for labor. Why don't you just do a little riff on that, Miles? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think that the it, it has to do with um, corporate America, really, because these are the individuals that are the ones that are taking advantage of this. You know, individuals are not engaging in um, stock buybacks. But what that does is it sends um, dividends directly to these investors and these uh, shareholders. And it has to do with like the way that our um, stock system is set up. You know, basically, you can have be, you know, make investments in certain companies and then uh, sell those and buy them back and make more money off of them if you're able to kind of be an investor and control some stake in in a company. And this is a common tactic used by those that, you know, that have the highest amount of um, stock ownership in companies. And you see it across the board. It's not just in these auto companies, um, but it's a way to extract profits without providing any labor you know it's it's all just part of a evidence of our financialized capitalist system where there's all these kind of exotic instruments that can be used in order to basically milk the system so that money is 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 coming back for the companies and it's not being distributed at all among among the workforce but rather is being held among the, the the corporate elite that are the ones that are actually able to um engage in a practice like that and so it does not directly benefit uh, an assembly line worker then? No, of course not. I mean, there's, I mean, it could if that's, I mean, that's money that's largely going into the, the pockets uh, of these investors that could be funneled into um, an assembly line worker if there was, you know, a better uh, wage determinations made in the contract, you know, if that money was being used. And that's an argument that's being used by the union right now to say, look, we need to um, take some of this money that has been amassed, these record profits, this massive amount of money that's slushing around at the top and uh, redistribute it and provide workers a benefit that is 
a higher wage, more more livable wage, and, and lower work hours. So, I mean, it fits into how they're arguing around around these issues. Um, but it's something that the public doesn't usually see because you don't hear about that. And that's something. I mean, this is this goes to show it's like when car prices go up. Car prices have been going up by like thirty percent in recent years. We've seen, as I said, executive pay go up 40%. Nobody ever talks about how those things are creating an economic crisis when workers are paid less, when they're still, you know, having to deal with high inflation. They're dealing with all the you know, negative economic ramifications that are going on with, you know, rising housing prices, um, rising gas prices now, all, all kinds of things. It's not considered a crisis until workers are then demanding you know, higher wages. And then suddenly, oh, they're trying to shut the economy down. And it's like, well, by asking for 40% uh, wage raise, and it's like, well, but when the when the executives got 40%, when these stock buybacks were happening, nobody was raising the alarm and saying, oh, this is going to, you know, shake the foundations of the economy. But like when workers are making these very basic demands, which they probably won't even win all of, let's be perfectly honest, then it's, you know, they're, putting the economy, you know, into a desperate position and somehow like um, holding holding us hostage or something like that. It's just it's kind of like flipping the script is basically the union is saying, look, no, we're not we're not causing the crisis. They cause the crisis by creating this economy that really only benefits the rich, you know, yeah. while working people are the ones that that, that suffer. Yeah, no, I uh, I hear you, man. That's uh, I could do a whole show on crisis, the whole concept of crisis. I've been talking so much about this with asylum seekers, uh, and uh, we're just constantly. Well, you know, um, uh, who wrote the book uh, about uh, how crises are manipulated by powerful people to make more money? Uh, and uh, it's so true. Uh, I watch it all the time. But uh, all right, so let's get back to the politics of this. In your humble opinion, uh, how how should uh, President Joe uh, Biden be responding uh, to this uh, showdown uh, between the UAW and the big three? Well, so far we have seen, I mean, I, I don't think that the administration should even need to get involved. Ultimately, these companies should submit to these workers' demands. And that's what uh, you've seen people like John Fetterman, the senator from Pennsylvania, um, say outrightly is that, you know, the workers deserve the demands they're asking for and that the companies should acquiesce to them. As we've seen with the massive strikes in Hollywood, you know, both the writers and the actors now on strike, a lot of companies don't want to do that. And they're willing to, you know, try to wait out wor uh, the workforce by just not being willing to uh, negotiate. And if that continues, we will see 150,000 workers, not all at once, but that is the workforce at UAW, uh, go out on strike in some of these um, chosen picket lines. And so I do think that there, that President Biden has a vested interest in playing some type of role, and he certainly has spoken publicly on it. Most recently, he said that there won't be a strike, you know, and that sounds like it could be a prediction or it could be a promise, in which case, you know, he might try to take action. We all remember what happened at the end of last year with the a rail strike where rail workers were ready to hit the picket lines. And all of a sudden there was a bill in Congress that got pushed through to kind of force this deal on the rail workers. And uh, and then Biden signed it. And it didn't include a lot of the benefits that the rail workers were fighting for, including um paid sick leave and time off the job. Um, there's differences between how, you know, the rail system works and the, the legislation that had 
existed before that allowed for Congress to do that. That doesn't exist for the auto workers, so they wouldn't be able to you know do that same process basically to force a contract on auto workers. But certainly, the administration could take a heavier hand in terms of trying to force something or or, or bring an agreement forward. Um, and so far, we haven't seen them very involved. I mean, I'm sure there is communication going on by both sides with the White House and with the administration and other political leaders. But we outright in public, we haven't seen a lot of um, action. And certainly, this would be um, a problem for President Biden to have the economy impacted in such a high stakes way by this many auto workers um, walking off the job. I mean, we export a lot of cars. That's a big driver of, um, of GDP, of the economy. Certainly Americans rely on new car purchases. And if the, the assembly lines stop running, that's going to definitely have an impact. And that's the tool that labor has in order to you know, get extractions from the company is to shut down production. So that's part and parcel of the whole reason for the strike. So it's not like that is going to be avoided while workers don't get any benefits, like they would have to receive some, uh, some benefit. And so what Biden could do is put pressure on these companies. And, you know, this is what happened in um, 2009, 2010 with the deals that were made with the auto workers. I mean, the, 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 the workers themselves did have to take concessionary contracts, but the companies did stay open because the federal government stepped in and um, played a played a big role. Biden could do, you know, some similar type of uh, leaning on these uh, companies, and he could publicly, you know, get behind this strike as an example of worker, an example of the kind of labor activism that he. Uh, speaks so highly of, you know, when he's on the campaign trail and says he's a pro-union president and he thinks that labor unions built the middle class. Well, this is what they're trying to do again now in the 21st century is to restore there to be some semblance of a, um, a, a real middle class uh, lifestyle in the U.S. for auto workers. And if Biden wants to benefit from that, I think he needs to be seen as on the side of the workers, not on the side of the company. And it would give him an opportunity to kind of um, play his like Scranton Joe uh, persona where he's, you know, looking out for kind of the everyman. Um, if he got on a stage with like Sean Fame, that's what Bernie's doing. Bernie Sanders is going to Detroit tomorrow evening to do a big rally at the Ford um, facility in Detroit with Sean Fame and the UAW leadership. Biden could join him on that stage and, you know, say these auto companies need to um, come to the table with a fair contract. The time is up. Wow. That that I that last riff you went on made me pause. Joe but Biden joining the strikers. Uh, before I go down that path, I just want to say something. Ladies and gentlemen, Miles Conflossen could be, if he wanted to be, the next Kenny G, Ken Griffith. You, dude, you could, if, if you weren't a lefty dedicating yourself to, to eradicating the inequities that exist in our universe, you could be so fabulously wealthy because you know how the game works. And, you could be Kenny G. Not that you would want to be Ken Griffin. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if Ken Griffin wants to be Ken Griffin. <laughs> By the way, I heard this new movie, man, makes fun of him so much. I can't wait to see it. Um, but uh, I just had to say that. That was just I, I, I have this feeling from time to time when I talk to public interest lawyers uh, who know the ins and outs of how utility company rate deals are structured and they're explaining it to me. And then I always say to them, do you realize you would make 
like 20 times as much money as you're making if you just went to work for ComEd? Anyway, sorry, I went on a tangent, Miles. I don't want to suggest that you should drop your career as a leftist journalist and become a capitalist, but uh, I think you no, we well. uh, we we try to work twice as hard for half the pay at, uh, in our you know little cor- corner in progressive media. We don't try to do that, but that's uh, tends to be the. I know you work harder than old Jim Cramer. What a joke that guy is! Oh my, ladies and gentlemen, do not take stock tip advice from Jim Cramer. I would recommend you go to Miles for stock stock tips before you go to Jim Cramer. All right. Um, so going back to Biden, I can't recall, and your memory may be better than mine on this, um, a president of the United States publicly getting behind striking workers. I, I, I just can't recall it. And I remember feeling, I remember it was Diane Ravitch who suggested the former, uh, well, the the education writer uh, who went from being a quote-unquote reformer uh, to being sort of a a leftist on the issue of education. And she was talking about how uh, Barack Obama's White House and Arne Duncan, who was the the, um, Secretary of Education at the time, handled some of the teacher strikes like the one in Chicago, the strike, the municipal strikes uh, in Wisconsin, how they like, stayed, quote unquote, neutral. And when you stay neutral in a fight like that and you're a Democrat, you're effectively siding with management. You know, Jim Cramer's not neutral on this stuff. Ronald Reagan wasn't neutral on this stuff. Donnie Trump's not neutral on this. They're on the side of man. So if they openly are on the side of management. If a Democrat who owes his or her support to union workers stays neutral, they're effectively abandoning the people that they're supporting, that, that uh, whose support they need to get elected. It's a very bizarre way of looking at the world. They want to prove that they're independent of the people whose support they desperately need, Miles, to get reelected. That's what's so bizarre about all these Dems who've supported the, uh, uh, the quote-unquote choice movement in ed- public education they're like abandoning the very teachers they're going to turn to to get support doesn't even make sense from a political standpoint that said i can't recall any president standing behind workers am i i know bernie sanders is going to be there i assume aoc will be with them you know the other lefties god bless all, every single one of them i think that that's the 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 sad truth of it is that we don't have a long record of um, seeing pro-union leadership in the White House. I mean, if you go back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, certainly there were you know massive strikes um, under his administration um, in the midst of you know the depression and um, coming out of the depression, and he was reelected multiple times. You know, and it you could say in spite of these strikes or partially because he was seen as stand as standing alongside the workers or you know um, being on their side in those fights um but that's why biden is probably the most pro-union uh president of my lifetime um if you just look at his nlrb appointments and what that nlrb is actually doing not to mention the labor department they're putting forward rulings that could change the labor landscape in America, which is an incredibly positive development, you know, things that will um, put limits on the type of employee intimidation around like um, captive audience meetings and the efforts that 
the you know when companies engage in unfair labor practices during um, union drives and campaigns, like moving directly to elections in those cases, or even recently putting forward this uh, overtime law, which is similar to what was almost done under Obama um, to provide overtime pay for workers um, throughout the wage scale. That Those are real benefits for workers, and they're done because Biden has taken a lot of really positive, aggressive moves in terms of supporting um, labor organizing in this country through the administrative state, through his National Labor Relations Board and Labor Department. But we, yeah, we have not seen him walk a picket line, you know, or or stand directly with labor leadership. And I think that this is one of the most exciting moments in terms of and parts of our uh, political uh, life that's happening right now is the the upsurge in labor organizing. And we all know that labor is the backbone of the Democratic Party, um, electorally and politically. These are the people, not only the organizations that donate to Democrats and um, to uh, presidential campaigns and the DNC and everything through membership dues, but they're also the organizations that are uh, activated in order to uh, knock on doors and do outreach work. You know, we wouldn't have two Democratic senators in Georgia, and certainly Biden wouldn't have won it if there had not been, you know, unions and worker rights groups that were um, hitting the doors in those places, and and not to mention the Midwest. So it's, I think, really incumbent upon Democrats to show the labor movement that they are serious about standing with them. We have not been able to get the PRO Act through, which would radically change, you know, labor law in the United States because, well, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema blew up the Build Back Better deal, which included the PRO Act, but we won't have to go into that. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, one big bet that the labor movement made on the Biden administration was like, they're going to they're gonna finally get this through. And they weren't able to do it because of this intransigence amongst Democrats in the Senate. But Democrat, they could still show the labor movement that they're serious by doing something like um, walking a picket line or joining a rally or, or 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 pushing them, I mean, as I said, Fetterman too is like out here saying, "Look, it's time for the company to give them a fair contract, give them a deal," and they would be celebrated for doing such a thing, for getting a, a contract for workers. And these are workers in Michigan, largely, you know, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, in in the Midwest. This is the workforce um, that the Democrats are going to need. To, to win in 2024. So I just think it would be extremely beneficial, not just for the workers, but also acknowledge the fact that our, we're in political gridlock right now, right? We have, um, uh, we, we, we don't have one party in leadership in Washington, so we're not seeing any movement really on um, any legislation in Congress where we are seeing movement um, that could have real effects on um, how we, live our lives and the material benefits that we able, we were able to access is through this upsurge in labor organizing and the impact that it can have across the board. So I think it'd be good for Democrats to take advantage of that. All right. Well, let me throw uh, the Linda Paul. And support question. it. Yeah, let me throw the Linda Paul question at you. Shout out Linda Paul, uh, dear friend of the show, uh, former WBEZ producer extraordinaire. And uh, she was at the, uh, first Tuesday show that Maya and I did at the promontory where we interviewed uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. And I was talking to him about uh, the asylum seekers who being uh, bussed into Chicago and New York uh, from Texas by Gregory Abbott. And it's deemed viewed as a crisis. And uh, my question to him 
was why don't we just flip the switch and just call it a flip the script and call it an opportunity uh, and uh, have Mayor, uh, excuse me, President Joe Biden send federal funds to uh, help relocate and help uh, get housing and put people to work and and turn it into an opportunity. Uh, and after the show, uh, Linda pointed out to me, she goes, well, Ben, not everybody in the universe views this the same way you do. And there will be voters, if they were to do that, uh, who would say, I think that's a waste of my tax dollars to spend money uh, relocating uh, refugees, uh, asylum seekers in Chicago uh, and New York. And there's a potential that swing voters in suburban Wisconsin or suburban Michigan would then vote for Donnie Trump because they were so angry at uh Joe Biden for getting involved, and uh, that's a that was her interpretation. That was she said that uh, that's a risk, a political risk that Joe Biden is facing. And I've thought about it. I got my own thoughts on it, but I'll put it to you. Getting the the, the similar criticism could be raised uh, at Biden if he gets involved in uh, in a proactive way with the strikers walking the picket line with him. Jim Cramer will lose his mind. That's the sound of Jim Cramer's little mind blowing up. Kenny G will lose his mind. Uh, Donald Trump will lose his mind. Ron DeSantis will lose his mind. Fox TV will lose its mind. Uh, and they'll gin up the Republican propaganda machine to uh, to make a, a Joe Biden look like he is the second coming of Trotsky. So uh, your thoughts on uh, the Linda Paul question. They're going to call Biden a socialist, regardless of whether he walks a picket line. They're already doing it. I don't think that there's any if I think trying to, you know, triangulate through the Republican spin machine is no way to kind of approach electoral strategy, because we've already seen that. Um, And Biden has already staked his reputation on being a pro-labor president. So this would just be kind of, you know, showing uh, that he's serious about not it would not be a change in his rhetoric or anything he's already established himself that way but i would say that i think that what people care about is i mean obviously the media plays an important role in determining narratives and how people view um electoral dynamics but i think people really care about what's going on in their lives and that is an area that um the president can make a much bigger impact in 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 terms of running on a platform. And so far, what we have really not seen is an outline of what an economic vision under a next Biden term would look like, Um, not to mention, you know, efforts to kind of create better economic conditions for um, working people right now. And that's where the administration could, you know, really change its approach and take on some of the uh, demands that have been made, the things that they ran on in 2020. You know, we were able to um, see this incredible um, growth of the welfare state in a very short period of time through things like, you know, an eviction moratorium, through direct stimulus payments, through an expanded child tax credit, through um, pausing student loan payments, through, support for childcare, all of those things are completely coming apart. We've seen the threat, the threading now of this safety net under a democratic president and people are facing the economic results of it. You know, if you look at 
credit card debt, if you look at medical debt, if you look at, you know, evictions are spiking right now, housing costs are like some of the highest they've ever been, largely because, ironically enough, because the Fed raised the interest rates to try to get inflation down. Now we're seeing housing prices skyrocket, rent prices, and all of these things are having real um, effect, and especially on seniors, some of the biggest, you know, voting blocks. And granted, Biden has taken some efforts to, you know, having Medicare negotiate prices around insulin, but that won't kick in for years. And right now, prescription drugs are some of the biggest costs on families, especially elderly families. And so this is an opportunity for, I think, Biden to actually and, and Democrats in general to to run on something, to have a positive vision. What I think that that was what allowed them to win in 2020 was people were like, oh, we're going to, you know, things could get better. We He basically ran on Build Back Better. I think then it was called like the American Families Plan, but it included things like lowering the Medicaid, uh, the Medicare eligibility age, and then it had like free community college, um, child care, the child tax credit, all of these things um, that we he could run on again and say, you know, if we win in 2024 and we get a Democratic Congress, these are the things that we're going to pass. Um, but instead, we haven't seen an outline like that. We've largely just seen him. So what he said is he's going to finish the job, but he hasn't really outlined like what that job was. You know, it was like being not Trump, I, be, I guess. Um, and, and that is still true. And of course, they're going to run on abortion, you know, they're, but they're not actually even going to say it seems like that they're going to codify Roe v. Wade exactly, but they are going to like protect abortion rights broadly. And I think that will have a big impact as well as the protecting the U.S. from plunging itself and in further into like authoritarianism under Donald Trump. But I think people need to know that their lives are going to get better and their lives need to get better. And that was really the wisdom of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I think that's why he had, you know, surprising successes because he gave people something to um, strive for and a positive vision to, for what they're going to vote for. And I have not seen that, you know, come out so far from the democratic party. I know that we still are a ways away from the DNC here in Chicago, and maybe that's what they're going to, you know, unveil in advance of that. I hope so. And this is just like a modest proposal for them to, um, to take that up. All right. Uh, let's get to this other, uh, issue I wanted to discuss with you. And, uh, I gave, uh, miles a homework assignment, which he's, really nice of him to accept the assignment and complete it. Uh, and it was to read an interview that was in the New York Times with a gentleman named Peter Dow. And that's D-A-O-U, but it's pronounced Dow. I've learned that from Miles. Uh, this is a moment of confession and embarrassment, political junkie though I am. I never heard of the guy, or I wasn't aware of him. Maybe I'd heard of him once upon I humbly apologize to all my listeners. I let you down. I did not know who this guy was until I read this article. Uh, Miles, on the other hand, knew who he was. <laughs> You passed that test, Miles. Anyway, this, this is the weirdest freaking story. It's just a, uh, like a personal development. Peter Dow was Hillary Clinton's primary. Here's the headline. He was Hillary Clinton's cheerleader. Now he calls Democrats a threat. Peter Dow, a former Democratic activist, is running Cornell West's third-party campaign. He talked to the New York Times about how he came to view the two-party system as a bigger problem than Donald J. Trump. I disagree with that last line. Because he doesn't say how he came to see it. That's the part that's the inexplicable mystery. Why did old boy change? <laughs> he saw the world one way in 2016. He sees the world in a completely different way in 2023. There's no moment. It's not like there's a in Citizen Kane, you know, with the, with the sled. You know what I mean? Like there's no defining moment. What got you to change? 
You know, what I'm saying? all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, I completely disagree with everything I said the day before. Why? Just because I do. OK, I changed my mind. I find it baffling in that element, which is the least important part about it, politically speaking, Miles. Um, but he's making this assertion uh, in his new uh, role as Cornell West's uh, campaign manager. Cornell West is running uh, is, uh, as a Green Party candidate. Uh, he's going to be running. If all goes well for him, he'll be on the ballot in November 2024 as a third party uh, against Joe Biden, the working assumption. Uh, any Politico is that uh, a vote for Cornell West is one that would go ordinarily go to Biden. So it's going to work for Donald Trump. I vehemently disagree with that. Having lived with and among lefties for my entire life, I will tell you right now, almost every lefty that's going to vote for Cornell West would never vote for Joe Biden. This little piece of propaganda that people put out, in my humble opinion, uh, about the threat that uh, individual lefties ex uh, have to Joe Biden, uh, I think is overblown. Now, what he could do is um, disillusion uh, people in the notion that there is a difference between Joe Biden and Trump, and so then people don't vote. There's always that possibility, which would hurt Joe Biden. Uh, so that would play into Trump's hand. So is there any part of what Peter Dow told uh, the New York Times, that you found yourself nodding along in agreement in um, that you that you were sympathetic to his worldview uh, that Democrats and Republicans are all the same. Well, of course, I think that there's uh, you know largely a ruling donor class that is made up of you know the corporate interests and the lobbyists that run Washington, that run K Street, that are you know, hugely influential in both parties and that we've seen both of these um, party systems be extremely resistant to any type of change. We've seen much more movement, though, on the Republican side in terms of them embracing this um, like rabid populist posing hard right America first MAGA ideology. Then we've seen the Democrats move to towards the left or even towards a progressive side. Um, and I think that has to do with, you know, the internal dynamics of, of both parties. But yeah, I mean, I am extremely critical of uh, the Democratic establishment and how the party is run. And I think that providing people more um, opportunities to, to vote is a good Democratic thing. Um, that said, I don't understand exactly the uh, choice to engage in uh, Green Party politics right now when there is more of what we saw, I would say, in I think that that Peter and other people have taken a different lesson from the Bernie campaigns. But by running in the Democratic primary and forcing Joe Biden to um, and before him, Hillary Clinton, to debate on issues like universal health care, like free college, like a $15 minimum wage, all these like kind of planks of um, a left platform, you had to have these uh, 
Democrats would much rather not talk about these things, talk about them and come up with alternatives and at least explain them um, on a debate stage or in the press, you know, and be treated um, differently, like they're in an actual competitive race. We're not seeing that with, you know, a Green Party challenge right now. And I understand that the Democratic Party is like treating this as if there's not even a primary, right? Like they're not scheduling debates and they change the um, primary uh, state schedule so that South Carolina's first, all these things that seem to be benefiting Joe Biden so that it's more of a coronation um, than it is like an active primary. And that frequently happens when there is an incumbent president, you know, running for re-election within his own party. So it's not so, so totally surprising. Um, but if, if Cornell West was running within the Democratic primary, I think there would be much more opportunity to really get um, some clear signals, if not commitments from um, the Biden administration about what they plan to do in the future and to have some type of impact on how they're going to move. Because even, you know, in the rosiest scenarios under a general election, it would be about like 5% of the vote, most likely for a Green Party candidate, even if it's uh, Cornell West, that's not going to change our political ecosystem in the United States whatsoever. Um, it might have an effect if we had ranked choice voting. I would be much more sympathetic to it because if we had ranked choice voting and people could put, you know, their um, their their choices down on a national level, which is what we've seen in states like Maine, where it's been introduced now in New York City as well, places like Minnesota, um, that kind of reduces the spoiler effect that you were talking about before of the idea that like, oh, by jumping into a race as a third party candidate, you're going to pull away votes from either, you know, the mainstream uh, party candidate. Um, but I think what we've seen with, you know, that, that that story in the case of Peter is like that it, it's what you said before, it's dis disillusionment, you know, and I think that by getting closer and closer to politics, his experience was getting more and more disillusioned from being a Hillary Clinton stand, like fighting any Bernie advocates in 2016 to now um, managing Cornell West campaign. And I don't think that's completely shocking because the closer you get to the system, you can see the, the ugly mechanics of it and the way that there's, you know, people benefiting and taking advantage of it and um, not having real uh, political commitments and rather being, you know, profiteers or what have you. Um, and that can really turn people away from treating the system as something that's worth uh, engaging in whatsoever and trying to, you know, to, to turn away from it. I mean, he's still engaging in the electoral system, but outside of the, um, the two party system. Um, but I'd also say like, you know, this is the people, th that's an evolution that frequently happens. Like no, there's barely, rarely are there political radicals who didn't start out liberals. You know, you, that's usually the evolution that happens is people are, you know, have kind of more moderate views and then they, radicalized by because they experience you know the political system unless you're like a red diaper baby or something and like born into a communist household <laughs> chances are you're not going to like yeah. come out of the womb like radicalized that's a, usually a process so that's why i'm always you know kind of like when people want to like fight liberals or something and i'm like yeah we can we sh definitely should be critical because that's part of the political education process but you shouldn't cast people out of your tent because you know they're not already as like politically moved far far left enough as you because 
that's they're the type of people that will need to be brought in, you know, to build the type of movement that's necessary to challenge the current political system. And certainly if we're going to try to like build a movement to challenge corporate capitalism and stuff, they're going to have to have much larger ranks than currently exist on the U.S. left. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I do, you know, take issue with some of the um, the, the choices that uh, Peter and others are making. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... That last riff you went on, I had a, I smiled. The reason I smiled is uh, because one of the things you and Micah, when Micah comes on the show, you we haven't had this conversation in a while, but you always used to gently chastise me for mocking voters uh, <laughs> and uh, trying to shame voters, which I'm not really shaming voters. I don't think I'll ever change their attitudes, uh, but uh, you've always pointed out, uh, Ben, come on now. Uh, you got to expect people have the ability to change uh, and you have to appreciate where they're at and not just make fun of them. Uh, this, this one riff uh, that Dow goes on, he has a tweet. He goes, he mocks liberal speak of the, of Democrats quote. This is from a, a, a post on X uh, quote, January 6, January 6, January 6, January 6, January 6, January 6, orange man bad, orange man bad, orange man bad, orange man bad, Putin, 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 Putin. <laughs> I'm sorry, that made me laugh when I read it. Um, I, uh, I have to say that was pretty funny. Um, at the same time, unlike Dow, I take very serious uh, – the threat that MAGA represents. And I know what you're saying because it's um, no one is more disillusioned with Democrats, I believe, than I am, at least on the local level, after 40 years of covering them, Miles. Uh, Mick Dumpkin and I had a conversation about this yesterday, and I urge everyone to check out that conversation when it drops. We were talking about CHA land policies and the games that Democratic mayors play with that and how they're taking land that's supposed to be for poor people uh, and affordable housing and then turning it over to soccer teams run by billionaires uh, and somehow saying that we, the poor people are the beneficiaries of it. So the games that uh, our mayors have played down through the years uh, – and while pledging allegiance uh, to certain Democratic capital D principles that they supposedly learned, inherited from FDR and et cetera and so forth, uh, is very disillusioning. But um, I think you could be disillusioned with the Democratic Party and still recognize uh, the threat, the author- as you put it, the authoritarian threat that MAGA is uh, across the board. And uh, so that's kind of where I stand with Peter. That and the other thing, like, dude, you got to explain why you got here. Okay. Otherwise, I don't know. It's like you're in some kind of weird trip. You're going to end up in MAGA country in four years. Mark my words, Miles. He'll be working for Donnie Trump in a year. That's my bet. That's where that's I I see where this trajectory is going. Well, there's there's you maybe remember this, Ben. There's a person named David Horowitz that um, is a good example of how this turn can really, you know, go the direction you're talking about. I mean, he was one of like the original founders of In These Times back in the 70s, you know, where I work. So, you know, I have particular feelings about this because he was a, you know, radical kind of left wing writer and thinker and journalist. And he's moved so far to the right. He's like, you know, to the right of MAGA. He's like, you know, deport all the immigrants and this really vile, like anti-Muslim rhetoric. Um, and that goes to show, you know, over the course of people's careers, um, uh, oftentimes they can take, make, uh, 
strange turns that you don't always see. Christopher Hitchens, you know, who was a great uh, writer and essayist, you know, on the left, he became, you know, kind of an Iraq war proponent, uh, you know, through various changes in his thought and everything. So these things do happen and you got to like stay. I think it's important. Consistency is important, but we should also recognize that there is people do make changes often for the worse, I would say, but um, provide for the ability for people to make, make changes like that. You could definitely take the word kind of out of that sentence about Christopher Hitchin becoming a Iraqi war. <laughs> that dude was waving a flag uh, for the Iraqi war. And then he died. He died of cancer. I had the feeling that he was eventually was going to uh, evolve away from that position. I just had that sense. But uh, he died and we'll never know. Um, all right, uh, Miles. And uh, I'll close like I always do. Why don't you tell folks about what's interesting uh, that they should read about in, in these times? For sure. Well, we're um, definitely doing coverage of the um, the upcoming UAW likely strike that, as I said, will um, start tonight unless there's a miraculous last minute deal, which could happen. I mean, that did happen in the case of UPS, although it was days before. But if you look, look on InTheseTimes.com, now you'll see a story on our homepage by Liza Featherstone, a really great New York-based journalist, um, about how the um, a really incredible climate bill was won in New York called the Build Public Renewables Act, which will provide um, like public utilities for um, uh, and, and, and renewable energy in the state of New York um, through a coalition of or- left organizers and socialists and how they really spearheaded and pushed through this bill. And as part of our socialism themed issue, that was the most recent issue um, that came out that you can buy. There's a there's a link to that on, in that story and on the website. I really encourage people, even if you just are like interested in what is this whole socialism thing that, you know, people are doing and talking about, even if you're you know, radically opposed to it and you just want to like find out about it. I encourage people to um, look into that because that's a really great explication of some of these like concepts and theories, but also providing like on the ground reporting about what's going on um, in the socialist movement across the U.S. and why in these times covers it and considers it kind of an important um, part of our you know, our political landscape um, to stay on top of. There's also a piece um, by Max Sawicki, who's a former economist at the Economic Policy Institute that's reviewing a book on the history of economic rights in the U.S. um, by an author named Mark Paul. And I think it's really interesting because it kind of shows this history in our, you know, from people like Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and Black civil rights leaders that were talking about the freedom budget and four freedoms, um, how there's been this consistent push for economic rights in the United States, rights to housing, education, jobs, and yet they have been largely unfulfilled. Um, and so I really encourage people to um, to check that out. And yeah, just stay um, in touch with uh, or, or, or stay on in these times and throughout this strike period. And even if there is a conclusion to the strike, we're definitely going to cover how membership looks at whatever agreement is coming down. And that's just one part of, you know, this labor upsurge I've talked about that, um, that we're covering. So um, definitely keep an eye out for all of that. And also, if I could, um, there is an In These Times uh, annual event happening on September 30th um, at the Haymarket House. Uh, So if you're in Chicago and you want to see some, I I think Lily Wachowski, who's the film uh, filmmaker, worked on The Matrix, is going to be there, along with uh, Stacey Davis Gates, a big friend of the Ben Jarofsky show, and um, Alex Hahn, our um, new uh, ED at In These Times, are all going to be in conversation. Damn, that's a big lineup, man. 
Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah. So you can at anytime.com. And you also, there's a big raffle or giving away a trip to uh, Portugal and stuff. So if you go on the Indies Times uh, website, you'll see um, links to both the raffle and the annual event um, again on September 30th at Haymarket House uh, in uh, Buena Park. So I encourage yeah. folks to come up to that. Yeah, that's where we're going to do our next first Tuesday. Hey, Mark, man, we're keeping that place busy. Hey, Mark, yeah. house. Uh, you know, Maya uh, and I have taken first Tuesdays on the road. Uh, so, uh, Hey Market House will be our next stop, uh, in October. And we're going to have, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure we've actually figured out, uh, who our guests are yet, but we have figured them out, but I'm not quite sure we've gotten confirmations from all of them. So I'll hold, hold off on that. Uh, anyway. All right, Miles, thank you very much. Hey Market House. It is September 30th in these times, Stacy Davis Gates, SDG herself will be on the stage. Uh, and everybody else is secondary to SDG. Um, sorry, other guests. Uh, Miles, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Appreciate it. And uh, I also want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job. Miles, I think you agree with me when I say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com. You can find columns, bonus interviews, and a whole lot more. Follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.